I'm Tony Epstein, and this is the Magical Mystery Tour. Join us as we dive into the heart of things, exploring new ideas and new ways of seeing and being in this wondrous, crazy world we share together. beginning the end so where to start this is a journey into sound brought to you in living color on wtdr it's happening i can feel it how would you explain it it's beautiful god it's god i see god how do you like that why it's preposterous thank you very much i realize what i'm about to say come as a great shock however using great presence of mind i'm counting on you to respond appropriately Information in the form of energy streams in, streams in simultaneously through all of our sensory systems in the form of energy. Hi, Brian. Tonio, my old friend. How are you? I'm great. How are you doing? Uh, I can't complain. It's been a bit of a whirlwind of a month since last we talked. Is that from doing interviews, or or is it new information? What's going on? All of the above. All of the above, Tonio. And plus, uh, my family relocated to Uruguay, so I'm talking to you from South America. Wow. What's that about? My wife was born and raised here. 
and I feel like I won the lottery. It's one of the most COVID-free countries in the Western Hemisphere, and we're heading into summertime. Wow. It sounds like Vermont, except for the summertime. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Yeah, you're, you're fairly sparsely populated, so everything is kind of under control, no? We're having our own sort of outbreak here, but it's minuscule by comparison to the rest of the world. Yeah, it's the same here. Same here, more or less. So my guest is Brian Murescu. He's the author of this fabulous new book, The Immortality Key, The Secret History of the Religion with No Name. And we had a wonderful conversation about a month ago, and there's just so much more that we could have gone into. And I'm really excited to explore some other things and also to get into some of the new things that you're learning and also to get into, when we ended our last conversation, you mentioned that you still had lots of questions, and we didn't have the time to go into that at all. So I'm curious, what are the questions left that are of greatest interest to you? Oh, that's a, well, that's a great question. Uh, questions on top of questions. <laughs> um, you know, when I wrote this book, and I've, I've been saying this in, in interviews, um, it's really just proof of concept, and I mean that. that that's not marketing. I wrote this book and spent 12 years doing so to see if there was any evidence out there, any hard scientific evidence to support this, you know, relatively crazy idea that our ancient ancestors were using drugs to find God. And as you know from our last conversation, uh, I came across these two fairly significant hits in the archaeobotanical journals, each of them published 20 years ago. So it's not that the data wasn't there, it's just that it had been ignored or overlooked or underreported. I'm not sure why. But given those data spots, and I'm talking about the ergotized beer from Spain and that psychedelic wine from Pompeii, Italy, you know, my neurons are firing every day, and I'm on the phone all day long ever since the book was published, fielding, you know, offers of collaboration from all kinds of academics all over the world who understand the proof of concept and want to explore this in the most scientific way possible. So it sounds like you have sparked a kind of renaissance or perhaps a whole new field that has never been explored before, even though it was in actual existence in itself. It was there, but it never had a home. Uh, so I profile Andrew Coe in the book quite a bit. Andrew is currently at MIT, and like me, you know, he has a background in classics, and so he's deeply interested in the historical aspects of this ancient hunt, you know, for uh, organic material. Uh, but he's also a scientist. I mean, he's a chemist. He's a, he's a hardcore chemist. So he sits at that intersection between the sciences and the humanities, and there aren't many people like him, even within archaeochemistry, which is a relatively discrete discipline in and of itself. Andrew is very unique in a very unique discipline, and, you know, for over a decade, he's run an online project, which is basically this virtual repository for all of his research. And he has a few collaborators and a great team who's been working with him. But it's essentially been, you know, this pursuit that's never had a home. And so together with Andrew, we're having these really fabulous conversations with lots of different folks across lots of different disciplines looking for an actual physical home for everything he's been doing, which is nothing less been going out in the field, testing these cups and chalices, and really determining what our ancestors were putting into their bodies and why, and examining the whole spectrum from, 
you know, from medicine to ritual to ancient pharmacology. It's just, it's really exciting stuff. And I'm, I'm so thrilled that this book could be a, a catalyst for those kind of conversations. So your role in this, in this whole thing is you're like connecting all the dots. You're like a central hub. <laughs> Maybe. I, I don't know what I am. Uh, but I do know that, you know, uh, I had this background in classics and, and Latin, Greek, and Sanskrit. I very much wanted to, to do the Ph.D. or become a priest. I think we talked about that last time. Mm-hmm. Uh, when I graduated Brown uh, at the age of 21, I'd, I'd already had eight years of Latin, seven years of Greek, four years of Sanskrit, a bunch of Arabic thrown in there for fun. That was going to be my life. And I took this left turn into law school, but never left the mysteries behind. And so, you know, I've been practicing law and making a living that way for the past 15 years. But I I think it's because I look at this as an outsider. And so I don't sit inside academia, but I have enormous respect for the academy. And I've developed these great relationships with mentors uh, like Greg Nage at at Harvard Center for Hellenic Studies, the classicist par excellence. And, and Andrew Coe at MIT, who, who I mentioned, uh, and folks at UPenn and Princeton and everywhere in between. And, you know, I like talking to the experts. I don't hold myself out as an expert. I do hold myself out as an attorney, and what attorneys do is they, they try and compile evidence. And so I think it's because I was a little distant from the academy that I could take a step back and look at all these different disciplines and help try to connect some of the dots and it, or at least encourage conversations that, I don't think I've been happening at the level that the discipline needs. So ultimately, where do you think all of this is leading to? I know that this is still somewhat early for you, but I'd like to get a sense of your inklings of where this is ultimately going, in a sense. Even if it's not just not ultimately where it's going, but but the possible avenues and, and implications of what and how this this new information can really contribute to our world? Well, uh, I don't want to oversell it, but I think the sky's the limit. And it's precisely by connecting these dots and having a very transdisciplinary conversation. And what I mean by that is getting experts together in fields that ordinarily don't communicate with one another, or at least in a robust way. So we're talking about connecting, you know, like my love of classics or ancient languages and history with the archaeochemistry and the ethnobotany, and even theology and divinity studies, which is a great interest of mine. And then even further, uh, collaborating with neuroscientists, psychopharmacology, um, uh, disciplines like that, putting it all together and trying to paint a more accurate picture of what was happening in the ancient world. The reason being, I I don't think that we can say anything definitive about the roots of Judaism or Christianity, for example, which I spend a lot of time talking about in my book, The Immortality Key. I think it's hard to come up with a definitive statement about the original Eucharist, for example, if we're not out there testing vessels, if we're not out there testing containers and finding out in a really disciplined way, looking to the organic evidence, what our ancestors were drinking. What did the Eucharist mean to them? What did wine look like in the first century, second century, third century AD? These are very, very big questions. You know, you look around at the at churches today, and the, the wine is flowing by the hundreds and thousands of gallons. And I, I don't think we can assume that the wine of today was the same as the wine of yesterday. And I, I write a lot about that in, in my book, how you're more apt to find different recipes of spiked wines. So we need to do a lot more testing. And I'm talking over the next 5, 10, 20 years to even begin to paint a portrait 
of the kinds of things that were happening in antiquity. And that's just one aspect of it. I mean, why does this matter to the average person? I'm not sure that it does, but there's always the possibility that you come across a genuinely new discovery in the ancient manuscripts or in the ancient organic evidence. Maybe we find a natural product that we can exploit today, one that's been lost to history over the past two or 3,000 years. What if we find something of nutraceutical value or even pharmaceutical value? That is a very, very real possibility with potentially millions of dollars standing behind it. Well, yeah, you're now touching upon what I was wanting to get into, and that is the practical application of this and practical implications. Because one of the reasons why this is of such interest to me is when I went to college, um, I took Eastern religions, and at the same time, this was in the 70s, there were psychedelics around, and I was experimenting with psychedelics at the exact same time that I was reading about these Eastern religions, and in particular, Taoism, which came alive for me with, I think, simultaneously with the psychedelics, so that the psychedelics actually had a profound mind-opening effect on me. It blew open the doors of perception and completely and utterly changed my life forever in a very, very powerful and positive and spiritual way. Wow. Wow. You know, that's how I got into this book in, in the first place. It was reading, I refer to them as the gentleman scholars, like Houston Smith and, and Aldous Huxley. You mentioned the doors of perception. They both use that phrase. Um, or Alan Watts. I mean, we're talking in the 50s and 60s. It was Houston Smith himself who called this hunt for the original sacrament of Western civilization the best-kept secret in history. It's, it's that phrase that stuck with me over these past 12 years. Uh, I mean, something I heard as a, as a young man. Um, these, these guys were after secrets. And in Houston Smith, same as Aldous Huxley, same as Alan Watts, it was a very powerful, very mystical psychedelic experience something that Houston in 1962, I think it was, described as the greatest cosmic homecoming he'd ever experienced after he tried psilocybin with Tim Leary. So, I mean, this in, in the very early generation before the war on drugs, th this was perceived as a legitimate avenue of pursuit. And when you look at what happened just this week, you're talking about a watershed moment. NBC News just called it a tipping point. You look at what happened in Oregon. They just decriminalized all drugs. So not just marijuana. All drugs have now been officially decriminalized. And psilocybin has been set up for the first regulated therapeutic market in the world on a, on a statewide level to administer psilocybin for various mental health issues. It is absolutely stunning. A colleague at the Drug Policy Alliance has called it literally the most significant event in the drug reform space in a generation. Yeah, I just heard about that, and that is amazing. That That's, like, coming years ahead of, of most people's expectations. In a way, yes. And then when you look at what happened to cannabis just over the past 5, 10 years, it's not entirely surprising. And there's there's been this movement for decriminalization followed by legalization. Uh, what interests me, because, I, you know, I am concerned about the public health aspects of this, I, I think regulation is a necessary part of this. And it looks it looks to me like we're going to have a very robust regulated system for psilocybin in Oregon. It's going to take two years to architecture and implement. But thereafter, you're talking about the first jurisdiction in the world where someone suffering from something like anxiety or depression may have the opportunity 
under you know, controlled conditions with trained personnel to experience the kind of things, again, that really got me interested in this mystery, the kind of things that Aldous Huxley and Houston Smith were talking about. And, and what you just mentioned yourself on a very personal level. Imagine this architecture being in place to help guide people through one of those experiences, the goal of which being to really help the mental health of Oregonians and probably eventually a significant part of the United States. It's, it's really incredible what's happening. Yeah, this is really, this is opening up the doors to a new branch of the field of psychotherapy. I, th- I think that, that's, that was the intent. You know, the, in, in the modern trials, which have been happening since the early 2000s, by the way, so we're talking, you know, a good 20 years since uh, Johns Hopkins reignited this research after a long hiatus because of the war on drugs, when, you know, even, even medical research into these substances, psilocybin included, was relatively off-limits. It was Bill Richards and Roland Griffiths at Hopkins who reignited this. And, you know, 50 peer-reviewed publications later, it's only now that this is all happening. And there will be undoubted changes in the mental health care industry. They publish landmark findings year after year that show the benefits for psilocybin, at least, on things like anxiety, depression, and of life distress. You have a, quite a few phase two trials happening. Something like NDMA just went into phase three. So whether it's PTSD, anxiety, depression, or end-of-life distress, folks are going to have an alternative therapy to turn to in the very near future. A couple of weeks before I interviewed you last time, I interviewed a scientist who underwent psychedelic therapy because he had various issues going on in his life, and he got to the point where he felt pretty desperate to change his life because his his life was completely falling apart. So he had to go underground. And this was in California where there apparently is a psychedelic therapeutic community, you know, working underground. And that's such a shame that this kind of healing work has to work underground. I mean, it kind of reminds me of one of Graham Hancock's pet peeves around psychedelics, and that is that there's been this war on consciousness and our ability to make our own choice in the privacy of our own lives about how we're going to deal with things in our life. And this is such a profound and rich area that is virtually untapped. And ripe for further investigation. I think, I think this has been the goal of the past 20 years of research in the modern era. You know, Graham uses language much more colorful than, than I could muster. Um, but I think that the, the, the war on drugs and, and the fog of war is slowly lifting. And I mentioned cannabis and the dramatic developments that's happened there. Well, as of Tuesday now, I think there were four new states that approved cannabis for adult use. So that, that pushes the number of states with either some kind of adult use or medical program into the high 30s. If I'm not mistaken, how many more do you need before the federal government gets involved? So psychedelics will inevitably be next, whether that's in three, four, five years or longer. The FDA will get involved in this process over the course of the next decade. And I think these underground communities, I mean, they may always be there. There may always be a market for this. It's impossible to predict what's going to happen. But I think more and more people who are psychedelic virgins, like myself, for example, may feel emboldened to avail themselves of properly approved and and regulated medicine 
that could really be transformative for their lives. That, that's what I really look forward to. And, and what I'd like to dedicate some of my, my legal work and my advocacy to. Mm-hmm. Yeah, uh, I'm, I find this fascinating and I'm interested in actually having that experience myself. It's been over 50 years since I've done anything like that. No, 40 years, I'm sorry. <laughs> Not that old. <laughs> um, <laughs> so this is profound connection between psychedelics and the imagination. And there's this chap that uh, you briefly write about in your book, Giordano Bruno. And there was this infinity gospel that was attributed to him. And I would love for you to talk about who he was and how he became a part of this story for you. Uh, what, an, what an interesting figure, Giordano Bruno. So he lives in the latter half of the 16th century, so 1548 to 1600, uh, when he's burned at the stake by the Vatican as a heretic. Uh, he was one of the most famous heretics of the time and deemed more dangerous than Galileo himself, who lived until the ripe age of 77. Granted, not, not a very fun life, towards the end. Galileo died in 1642, but Bruno was seen as somehow more dangerous, worthy of the death penalty at least. And there's lots of different reasons for that. One of them, as you alluded to, is this gospel of infinity. I think that's a phrase that Neil deGrasse Tyson used, actually, which, which, which I love. It's, it's, it's very poetic. And it kind of dovetails to this many-world hypothesis that is popular today among theoretical physicists, or not so theoretical. So Bruno, at a time when folks weren't even sure whether the Earth revolved around the sun or vice versa, was saying that basically there were multiple suns in the universe, in the cosmos, orbited by multiple Earths. And maybe they had human beings just like us on them, which, as you can imagine, essentially dethrones the human species on Earth as God's prized possession. And that, that, was, that was heresy in the mid to late 16th century. So Bruno was targeted by the Inquisition. He was rounded up for that theory and others. And what I write about in my book is his connection to drugs. And it's hard to tease out, you know, specific details, but he did write this piece called The Heroic Enthusiast in 1585. And it's an allegory about nine blind men who essentially make this pilgrimage from where, where he was born and raised in southern Italy to Mount Cercheo to see the famous psychedelic witch Circe, the, the Greek goddess of plants and charms. And they go to her looking for what he says, is beneficii, which is this Latin word, which means drugs or poison. And I always found that reference kind of intriguing. And so eventually, after a series of trials and tribulations, these nine blind men are healed of their blindness, and they experience the same beatific vision after imbibing Circe's magic potion. And Bruno says that it was as if they were inebriated with that which they saw so plainly. He says, the tanti foriosi de batanti. Like they got drunk in a very Bacchic way, in a very pagan way, off of this theatistic vision and these drugs. And so I went into the Vatican secret archives to review this 59-page summary of Bruno's trial and interrogation to see if I could find any more clues about drugs. I won't spoil what happened inside the Vatican archives, but I found some interesting details. And there's also correlations, modern correlations, between scientific discovery and psychedelics. There are some very high-profile Nobel Prize-winning scientists who, late in life, admitted that they had taken psychedelics and that 
they were the actual cause of these groundbreaking scientific discoveries. Yeah, there's a lot of lore around that. I've read the accounts about Crick mm-hmm. um, and Steve Jobs has credited psychedelics with, with some of his insights. There, there, there are lots of anecdotes in the literature about that, which is why, again, these gentlemen scholars, Houston Smith and Huxley and Watts, were so intrigued by the potential of these substances because there's something more than the therapeutic value going on. I mean, they have to be studied and researched and investigated, obviously, for their therapeutic value, but there's something else that happens inside that experience. And these scientists write about it in peer-reviewed journals. They write about the mystical experience at the core of this therapy. In fact, it's the depth of the mystical experience, this godlike experience that actually is correlated with the clinical outcome on your anxiety, depression, etc. And the scientists write about this quite a bit. The volunteers I've talked to talk about it quite openly. Uh, we're talking about these very mystical experiences that, that transform people's lives. 75% of the volunteers say their one and only dose of psilocybin is essentially one of the most meaningful experiences of their lives. It's not the most meaningful. I mean, really life-changing stuff. Yes, and so there's lots of practical applications. And there's another interesting aspect of this that is not directly related to your work, but it but you do write about it, and that is Persephone and, and Demeter. And what happens, you know, the mythology of what happened with them is really quite a good metaphor for psychedelic use in psychotherapy, in a way, because Demeter, this is my take on it, Demeter drinks the beer, you know, after her daughter Persephone is kidnapped and taken down into the underworld, Demeter insists on having the beer so that she can, my take is that, so that she can go down into the underworld to pursue her daughter and that it's like a metaphor for the use of psychedelics to be able to enter the underworld. That's interesting. I, you know, I never read it that way, but that's, 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 that's interesting. Um, you're referring to the, the hymn to Demeter, this 496-line poem that, that survives from antiquity, 7th century B.C. It's rediscovered in 1777, and, and in there... Starting at line 209, there is a recipe for this beer that you're talking about, which sent me on this hunt to try and find the organic evidence for it. It was a potion called the kukion, this mixed potion, and the ingredients are listed out as barley, water, and mint, which kind of reads like this rudimentary recipe for beer. Um, We don't know how or when that potion was consumed by the initiates who went to Eleusis, this uh, spiritual capital, essentially, of the ancient Mediterranean. 13 miles northwest of Athens, but we do know that potion, that beer, was somehow involved in these mysteries, mysteries which you're quite right, had everything to do with entering the underworld, confronting death, and then overcoming it, essentially becoming immortal, guaranteeing these initiates the afterlife. So the beer, the sacrament, was somehow involved, which is why, again, Houston Smith refers to it as the best-kept secret in history, not just because of its use among the ancient Greeks, but because of its use among the Paleo-Christians, right? One sacrament replacing another, the Eucharist. And you find similar sacraments throughout different mystery traditions, and you find different rituals, like the Marzea ritual that I write about a lot, that survives from the Canaanite period all the way into biblical times. It's very similar, the ritual, the way the initiate enters the underworld. In fact, there's, there's an author who writes about this, I mentioned in the book, who describes 
this interaction of the living with the dead, how this wine, this very sacramental wine, was used in this Marseille ritual to enter the underworld, to meet the ancestors in this cataleptic state of trance, which is really interesting. This, this idea survives all the way through antiquity, the use of sacraments to communicate with the dead, for the dead to come back to life and participate in that ritual. I write a lot about the catacombs of Rome, where an identical ritual, or seemingly identical, was in use amongst the Romans and the early Christians, in this ritual called the Refrigerium. The Refrigerium, again, sacraments are being used to commune with the dead. A really fascinating idea. So I think it does connect to the beer and that journey to the underworld. You mentioned the Marseille myth. Talk more about that. Is, is that the same Marseille that you talk about seeing a painting of at the Louvre Museum? Um, no, no, it's slightly different, although at the Louvre, you do, again, you're seeing similar sacraments. At, at the Louvre, I was exploring 5th century B.C. vases showing the, the mixing of sacred wine. But the idea is, I mean, really similar. The, the idea is that the wine in antiquity was routinely spiked with plants and herbs and toxins, and there had to be something similar at work, you would think, with this Marseille ritual. This is in use amongst the Canaanites, or at least as far back as then. We have writings about it, like the Divine Feast of El, which dates anywhere from the 14th to 12th centuries B.C. And again, it is even translated by some scholars as to fall down dead or, you know, to fall dead into the underworld, to make this descent in this state of trance, is one way of translating Marseille. So it survives from then all the way, like I said, into the time of Jesus. In the, in the lifetime of Jesus, this ritual is still being celebrated in the Holy Land, this mystical conjunction of the initiates with the God. And, you know, we have to start asking ourselves, how and why is this happening? What kind of wine was this? And... Going back to the very beginning of the conversation, all the more reason to be going out into the field and testing these ancient wine containers to see what kind of wine it really was. Mm -hmm. So where do you think that's going to take us? And I think there's also, you know, going into what do these gods represent to the ancient Greeks and, and the ancient Egyptians and the people who worship these gods? And what was the role that these gods played in their lives, and what did those people believe those gods to be? And considering that there's a psychedelic ritual element to connecting with them, what are your thoughts on all of that? Yeah, I think about that a lot in the book. I mean, you, you mentioned Demeter and Persephone and these ritual cycles of the goddesses. The Marzea feast that we were just talking about is in celebration of El, the other wine god, himself kind of an analog of Osiris in Egypt. Both of them kind of an analog to Dionysus, right? The other wine god who conquers Greece. I'm not really sure what the average ancient Greek thought about these gods. But I will say that I don't think the initiates were under the impression that Zeus was standing on top of Mount Olympus, hurling thunderbolts down at us hapless humans. I, I don't think that's what the initiates thought. I mean, that's the way we teach it, right? In, in high school mythology or, or Western civilization classes. But for the initiates, I'm not sure they envisioned the gods quite that way. For them, the ultimate goal was communion with the god, especially in the rites of Dionysus, where, where the ultimate goal was nothing less than enthusiasmos, right? To be filled with the essence of the god, quite literally. So the minas, the devotees of Dionysus, 
they weren't worshiping this god of wine and ecstasy and mystical rapture as like an abstract concept. I mean, for them, it was a living, breathing divinity, the whole point of which was to commune, to become one, literally, to become one with Dionysus, which is why it's so interesting in early Christianity, in the Gospel of John, how Jesus is filling a very similar role, where the whole point of the Eucharist, this immortality potion, is to become one with Jesus. It is explicit in John six fifty six when he says in Greek, whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood remains in me, and I in them, he finishes. The whole point of Christianity is to become one with Jesus, if you're reading that passage of John's Gospel. It was very similar with Dionysus. So for the ancients, I don't think these were abstract, silly, cartoonish concepts. I think this was the very difference between life and death. And what we're talking about really is very deep mystical experience that is really beyond description. Yes, by definition, it's ineffable. I mean, you know, part of the reason that we don't have a lot of evidence for the ancient mysteries is that they were secret, as the name implies, obviously. It was forbidden to talk about them under penalty of death. And you're talking in ancient Greece, the society that produced all the literature and the arts and sciences that we take for granted today, they maintain these mystery traditions as oral traditions. I mean, think about that. How weird is that, that at Eleusis, or the Mysteries of Dionysus, we don't have a lot of written testimony. There wasn't any doctrine or dogma. There was no record. Um, you know, hints and clues would escape in the form of the hymn to Demeter that we just talked about, or Euripides the Bacchae, which debuted at the Theater of Dionysus in 405 B.C. So, I mean, we have clues, but that's all we have. Uh, this stuff was, was secret, and I think part of the reason was because it's ineffable uh, when, when you think about it. And even in Christianity, there was always this, um, you know, there's this tension between the exoteric and the esoteric version of Christianity. And I think it does have something to do with the ineffability of the mystical experience at the core of this stuff. And just think about that word, mystical. Even in the Gospel of Mark, when, you know, Jesus is out there talking in parables quite a lot in the Gospels, as we're all familiar with, the prodigal son and the mustard seed, etc. When he's asked in the Gospel of Mark why he does that, Jesus says these are musteria, these are secrets, these are mysteries, not to be communicated to, you know, ordinary mortals, is how that word is defined in some of the biblical lexica. So from the very beginning, Christianity is absolutely born with secrets. Jesus himself makes that explicit, which is why even today, over the past 2,000 years, there's always this tension between, like, the inner circle of esoteric initiates and the external layers that go into the church buildings and, and the liturgy and the things that most of us think about when we think about religion. But at their core, there's that mystical experience, which, oddly enough, seems to be um, resuscitating in these modern clinical trials of psilocybin, which is why I went down this rabbit hole. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I didn't grow up in the Christian tradition, and there's this obsession and fascination with, with the Holy Grail myth, which I have never really understood. I've never really looked into. <laughs> the extent of my understanding of it is basically movies and readings of, you know, the pursuit of the Holy Grail you know, at the time of the Knights of Camelot. So I'm really curious, what what is the significance? I suspect that the Holy Grail is an externalization of the great mysteries that we're talking about. Um, 
And, of course, they speak of the Holy Grail as being this iconic cup or chalice used at the Last Supper. And that also brings me back to another thing I want you to talk a bit about, and that is Mary Magdalene and the Gospel of Mary and where she fits in this and why she and the other Gnostics were kind of banished from the Christian Church. <laughs> okay, now now we're cooking with grease. Yeah, uh, this I know. Is, you know, I mean, fast. We could talk for another two hours about this. Um, if if you if you want to just have some fun, there, I mean, there's there's no better book than Holy Blood, Holy Grail. Um, obviously, I'm I'm a, I'm a big Dan Brown fan too. I was really inspired by the Da Vinci Code. Uh, there's there's lots of fun stuff there. I mean, so the Holy Grail, it's it's it could be a couple of things. Uh, it comes to us from these romances, really, from the Middle Ages and then acquires all this mythical lore around it. So at turns, it's the cup that was used by Joseph of Arimathea to catch the blood of Christ at the crucifixion itself. At other times, and I think more popularly, it's the cup that was used by Jesus at the Last Supper. You know, we know that the Last Supper is recorded in the Gospels, so we can assume there really was a chalice, at least on the the textual accounts. The big question is, what was in that chalice, right? I, I refer to it as the most overlooked question of the past 2,000 years. Again, we're out there serving all this wine to feasibly a, a third of the world's population who consider themselves Christian, and, you know, what kind of wine was Jesus actually talking about? Or what kind of wine were the earliest Christians using? We have no archaeological evidence for the existence of that cup. We have some cups that claim to be the Holy Grail, and you can find them in different monasteries in Spain and, and around Europe. But, I mean, we have no scientific proof that it was the cup used by Jesus, let alone what was inside that cup. I mean, so as crazy as it is, it, it is an idea that is worthy of scientific exploration. Now, in the immortality key, I'm not out in search of the Holy Grail as if there is something to be found. But I am in search of proxies meaning the cups that were used by the earliest Christians in imitation of what they thought happened at that ritual dinner, where, again, Jesus is instructing his followers to consume his flesh and blood. There is nothing Jewish about that concept. This is not a Passover meal. This is a very pagan Greek ritual act of cannibalism, which is why the Romans accused the Christians of cannibalism and threw them to the lions in the first centuries A.D. This, is, this, was, this was really weird stuff. And as you know, I grew up Catholic, uh, I, just, I could never get over my fascination with, with that flesh and blood, hence the Holy Grail. So what it all means, I'm not quite sure. I'm not looking for evidence. Uh, what Mary Magdalene has to do with it, if you read Dan Brown, you'll get one version of it. If you read Elaine Tagles at Princeton, whom I consider a hero, you'll hear about a different Mary Magdalene and the Gnostics who, again, getting back to what we were talking about, people who felt compelled to retain the secrets that were embedded into the birth of Christianity. And so the Gnostics comes from the Greek gnoo, which means to know, and as Elaine Pagels puts it very poetically, to the Gnostics, to know oneself at the deepest level is simultaneously to know God, to realize this self-enlightenment, to realize that you and God are identical, was the Gnostic ideal. That is an explosive idea. I think it's just as fascinating today as it was 2,000 years ago. Yes, that seems to be, in a way, a crux of, of, all, of most of the wars that we've had 
in modern history, well, not even just modern history, but going back to early Christianity. Right, right. And I think even within Christianity, you know, I keep mentioning this. I sound like a broken record, but if you look around today, there's 33,000 denominations of Christianity. And I, and I think that that was the case in antiquity as well. And then over time, you know, you see the Catholics disagreeing with the Orthodox and the Great Schism. You see the Protestants disagreeing with the Catholics. You see the Evangelicals disagreeing with the Protestants. You see the Mormons disagreeing with everybody. I mean, there's always a new version of Christianity that seems to come along with each passing generation. Each of them, perhaps, an attempt to rediscover that original Christianity. We, we can't seem to agree on who this Jesus was or what the message was. So there's room for conflict, and yes, it has absolutely resulted in bloodshed throughout the development of Western civilization. And I, I don't think it's been resolved. It's, it's, it's far from resolved. And now today we're at a place where we can add science to the mix, which makes things even more controversial, because we have some of this technology to peer back into the past and peel away some of the layers that were there in the very early days of Christianity. What kind of Jesus are we going to find now? What, what kind of Christianity are we going to turn up now in the Holy Land and the Greek-speaking parts of the early Christian world? I mean, this stuff, it doesn't get less fascinating. It gets more every day. Well, it seems as though most of these Christian sects or denominations are missing the boat because it seems to me, from my own experience of these mysteries, is that once you have the direct experience, you also understand that everyone has access to that experience and that it's totally unique for each person, and it cannot be based in any kind of exterior fixated thing or dogma or religion. Yeah, that, that, that's, the big, that, that's the big question. I, I quote Brother David Steindl-Rosh in my introduction, who talks a lot about that, that when, when you think about religions in general, not just Christianity, they're, they're born of mystical visionary experiences. They're born of very powerful things that defy explanation. And the attempt to, to capture that revelation results in dogma and doctrine, which becomes dogmatism. And it's really a good-faith effort, I think, to recapture the magic, but it winds up becoming fossilized over time which is what Brother David talks about. I don't think it means that there's no place for the Church. I don't think it means that there's no place for dogma um, or a congregation or the community that comes with being part of a faith. Um, I, I don't think mystical experience and the bureaucracy of faith have to be mutually exclusive. I think that the Church can be there, or the Temple can be there, to help guide people through these very unique experiences, whether with psychedelics on the one hand, whether with someone at the end of their life on the other, for example, who may want to avail themselves of a psychedelic for end-of-life distress. Uh, think about uh, the, the potential in, in hospice care or, or a, a last rite. Imagine a last rite where somebody could experience the power of this insight with the help of their priest or pastor. It's really intriguing stuff. I think there's a way to marry these tension points that have always been there in, in any faith. And also make them accessible to the common people, because in ancient Egypt, that was a ritual that was reserved for the kings, the pharaohs. And it was something that they right. all went through in order to be able to move on to the next world. 
Right. I write a lot about that in the book, and I'm not sure where it ends up, but I, I do trace this really interesting development that, I mean, the concept of these sacraments was not unique. It was not unknown to the ancient world. I think the question was, for whom, you know, and at what cost? If you look at ancient Egypt, these sacraments to facilitate these otherworldly or even afterlife journeys, they were reserved for the pharaoh. And in, in the Near East, like in, in Cana, for example, it was reserved for the royalty. And the Marzea was for these landowning aristocrats. And then you have the priesthoods of Judaism and Christianity coming along. But if you look at what Jesus was really saying, in a sense, the wedding at Cana on the one hand and the Last Supper on the other is really an attempt to democratize these sacraments, the same thing that Dionysus was doing. You know, you didn't have to go to... XYZ temple to worship Dionysus, like we were talking about. This was kind of a free-form outdoor church or congregation that would spill across the mountains and forests of ancient Greece. Jesus was doing something kind of similar, you know, by bringing that sacrament, the Eucharist, into the upper room, right? You're, you're talking about domesticating, not just democratizing, but domesticating a sacrament that you know, for Lucis would have been a profanation, would have, would have been a sacrilege to celebrate these mysteries at home. You had to go to the temple. So if you look at what Jesus was really doing, I write so much about this because it, it's, I think it's a, a fascinating aspect. The, the innovation that Jesus was saying is that this experience should be available to anybody. And again, look at the Gospel of John. He's saying this immortality potion of my blood should be available to anybody. Anybody who drinks it, is what he says in Greek, anybody who drinks it should achieve immortality. It's a gigantic promise. And I find this so exciting, because I think this is where we're at as a species, that we, we need this sacrament, because we're on the verge of destroying ourselves in that very way that, that last time we were talking about how the elimination or the outlawing of the mysteries would make life unlivable. And I think that we have, we have fulfilled that prophecy. Yeah, it's a very romantic idea, isn't it? We, we talked last time about Praetextatus. Right. Uh, he's this Roman uh, hierophant who's recorded in the literature of the 4th century A.D. as the mysteries are, uh, there's an attempt to outlaw them, or at least to outlaw these nocturnal celebrations. And here comes Praetextatus, who's been initiated, at Eleusis, and he says to the Roman emperor at the time, you know, don't kill these mysteries. To kill the mysteries is to kill humanity. And he says that that life will become abiatos, unlivable, not just for the Greeks and Romans, but he says for the human species is the only implication. This is what Karl Kareny says, a gold standard scholar of the classics in the 1960s. So this provocative idea that Eleusis somehow held the world together, which is to say, following Kareny's logic, which is to say, that access to nothing less than this beatific vision, right? It's exactly how he writes about it. But access to this beatific vision somehow held the species together. I mean, what could, what could that possibly have been? Um, it doesn't have to be psychedelic. It doesn't have to be anything exotic. But it's, it's an experience of death and rebirth at the very least that seems to have held civilization together, according to Pythextatus. And so... What else could that be but this once-in-a-lifetime transformative event where you are convinced that you are one with God, one with the cosmos? I mean, it's the only kind of inference we can draw from a statement like that. Right. And also the realization 
and being able to see that same God in everybody else. Well, that's the even bigger point. And what's weird, it's really weird, is this is what happens in, in the Hopkins experiments and the NYU experiments with psilocybin. I talked to Dinah Baser, and I profile her in, in my book, and I'm still in touch with her because I'm fascinated by her story. She describes herself to this day as an atheist, and yet under the influence of psilocybin, she said that she felt as if she were bathed in God's love. And she uses that terminology very conscientiously. Now, she didn't leave her one and only session of psilocybin like this self-centered narcissist who found salvation and found God and, and isn't that great for Dinah. She left very concerned about the planet. And, and, and she says that she fell in love with her family all over again and with people and that she could recognize the genuineness in people. And across the board, in, in the Hopkins and NYU and other studies, you see these pro-social behaviors come up time and time again in these volunteers from their one and only psychedelic experience. You know, pro-social behaviors that would be good in a democracy, for example, like kindness and self-sacrifice and resource sharing, the kinds of things that I think we need today. And, and what's at the root of all that? Exactly right. The recognition that you're not that different from your neighbor, or, you know, let's take it a step further, the recognition that there's something divine in your neighbor, that there's a spark of the divine in all of us, that if you can touch even once, maybe it's a little easier to recognize in those around you. And what does that result in? Um, a pretty good world. Exactly. And a world that's seemingly more and more out of reach each moment, and that I think many of us are longing for more and more. Amen, brother. I'm certainly there. <laughs> I love that we went there, and I'm just so happy to be having this conversation with you. So getting back to the mysteries of Eleusis, there's a kind of paradox that I want to go into with you. The mysteries of Eleusis were so secret, and yet Triptolemus, who you spoke of and you write about in the book, you say he was sent west to teach the farming of the grain, which of course wasn't farming of the grain because everybody knew how to grow grain, that it had to be the mysteries of the grain, perhaps the ergotizing of the grain and things like that. Why, if the mysteries of Eleusis were so secret, why was Triptolemus sent west to other parts of the world to teach this stuff? That's a great question, and we're going we're gonna to have to end uh, on a nice cliffhanger, because um, <laughs> I, have, I have another appointment, but, I, but, but I'll say this, I'll say this, Tonio, um, it's a gigantic mystery. As, as I just mentioned, it, it was a sacrilege, it was a profanation of the mysteries to celebrate them outside Eleusis, and yet here's this curious figure, this missionary, who is dispatched by the goddesses to spread the gospel of the grain, and as, you know, Wasson, Hoffman, and Ruck speculated in 1978 in their landmark book, The Road to Eleusis, here's Triptolemus going out there teaching something. And it, it couldn't have been simple agriculture, because like you said, that had already spread across Europe during the Neolithic period. So by the time of the classical mysteries, or even a little before, what was Triptolemus dispatched to do? To teach what exactly? We don't know. And, you know, Ruck would speculate to teach the secret of secrets, is how he puts it. This oral tradition that was passed down ordinarily from mother to daughter about this ergotized grain, or maybe some other kind of toxin. But the ergotized grain was the hypothesis they were running with because it's just so common. It's so natural. 
for ergot to pop up on the cereal grains. And if that was in fact the case, you're right. There is uh, an implicit admission in the hymn to Demeter and this, this myth that survives around Eleusis that it, it was meant to go abroad. It was meant to go to Italy and to Iberia. Maybe, maybe the goddesses did want this celebrated outside the hallowed temple at Eleusis, which seems to be exactly what was happening, for example, at Mas Castellar de Pontos, that, that Greek farm that I talk about in the book with this sanctuary where something very like the mysteries dedicated to the same goddesses, Demeter and Persephone, seems to have been taking place in the 2nd century B.C., and they seem to have been imbibing an ergotized beer, where we found that, that archaeobotanical data. Um, is there more out there? I guess we'll have to wait till next time, Tonya. Well, I really want to talk again with you because there's some more things I want to talk with you about. So uh, thank you so <laughs> much. This has been a, a wonderful pleasure for me. Well, for me too, I'm always here for you. You, you actually, you, you really get my imagination firing. So let, let's do this again for the holidays. Okay, I'm looking forward to it. And be well. Be well. Thank you. Thank you. And that was Brian Mooresku. He's the author of this fascinating book we've been talking about, The Immortality Key, The Secret History of the Religion with No Name.
how do we get from where we are to where we want to be, and why is it so difficult? Well, I think it's difficult because we have a lousy way of communicating. We communicate with words. Words are small mouth noises. Small mouth noises are a very low-grade channel of communication. What virtual reality holds out is the possibility that we can create a language where we see what we mean. If we could see what we mean, we would have a kind of telepathy. Anyway, the last point I want to make, because I think this is very important, we all talk about psychedelics, the impact on ourselves, the individual experience. But what are they when you look at a million psychedelic trips? What does it do to society? What it does is it dissolves boundaries. It dissolves the ultimate boundary, which is ego. Ego is something invented by frightened people 20,000 years ago as a way to suppress women, as a way to suppress sexuality, as a way to suppress the wonder inherent in the world. Psychedelics are catalysts for the human imagination. This is the goal that lies ahead at the end of history. History doesn't go on endlessly fluctuating centuries into the future. History is leading toward the transformation of this planet in our lifetime. A cybernetic, biological, psychedelic being, the collectivity not only of humanity but of all life on earth, is struggling to be born. The entire universe of matter is the womb of mind. And it is the task of human beings to lead the collectivity of humanity out of the labyrinth of matter and into the realm of the imagination. The imagination is where we're all going to live. The imagination is the only place where the human soul is at home. One thing occurred to me that I wanted to leave with you, and that is what this is all about in political terms is the empowerment of direct experience. We all are sold a bill of goods. Maybe you remember the Bob Dylan song where he says, it is not he or she or them or it that you belong to. This is what psychedelics teach you. We're not going to learn it from Time magazine. It doesn't come like that. Direct experience, your experience, your opinion, your feelings, your sexuality is the only real thing in your universe. Don't transfer loyalty to ideology, to money, to party, to friends. All of these things are outside of the core of your reality and centuries of programming have been laid on to all of us to take away the power of our own direct experience. This is why psychedelics are illegal. They don't care whether people jump out of windows or any of that. They're not interested in public health. 
They do not want people to take back their minds. That's really, to my mind, the bottom line. That's why this thing has potential world consequences, because an empowered individual in touch with their own existential core can do what that guy did with the 18 tanks. It was an idea that stopped the tanks, and it was an idea expressed not over state radio, not through the newspapers, but by one person taking a stand. You know, a great American philosopher, and I hope it was Emerson, said, if you are right, you are a majority of one. You are a majority of one. And this is what we all need to realize. We are responsible for ourselves and we will set the agenda for the human future. Yeah, question is, do androids dream of electric sheep? Do androids dream of electric sheep? <coughs> Electronic media creates reality. Electronic media creates your mind. Do androids dream of electronic sheep? This is Angel. This is Angel. We are the Android Sisters. Last night I watched the nightly news. Last night I watched the nightly news. Do you watch the nightly news? Do you watch it faithfully? Night after night after night. I watch it. I watch it. We watch the, the nightly news. But last night was different. Something happened. As I watched, I suddenly saw that... My hands had become little hooves. My feet were little hooves. <gasps> My nose was long. My nostrils were big. <gasps> I had two furry ears. I was covered with wool. <gasps> when I opened my mouth, out came ba ba, and the anchor man was saying. Blah, blah. And I replied, Bah, bah. And the anchor woman was saying, Blah, blah. And I replied, Bah, bah. Then I remembered, then I remembered, electronic media creates reality. Electronic media creates your mind. Do you watch the nightly news? Do you watch it faithfully? Night after night after. When they go blah, blah, blah. Do you go bah, bah, bah. And you have the nerve to ask us, do androids dream of electronic sheep? And so we reply, yes, we dream of electronic sheep. We dream.
of you. You know, sometimes we have a hard time living in the comfort of the known. We don't understand that life only starts at the edge of the unknown. That's when life starts. From a Sufi perspective, what we would say is God is an emergent phenomena. God is a metaphor for the universe. And God is everywhere. So we are the universe unfolding on itself. And the universe wanted to feel this expression of what it is to be 7 billion humans or the birds and the bees and the wind and etc., etc. And in some ways, our purpose is to help guide that evolution. And so I don't really believe in the new age ideal that the universe is on path and everything's perfect. There's a great Ram Das line where he says, well, the universe is perfect, including my desire to change it. And that's sort of more my perspective is more quantum physics perspective, which is we meet the universe halfway. There's no predestiny you know, the, the old mystics were wrong about predestiny and providence, mm-hmm. but there's also the, the Western rationalists were wrong. There's no pure agency. There's a meeting of the universe halfway that comes from intention and it comes from entanglement and it comes from context. And when we set our intention, we actually influence the ability of atoms to move in a certain way. And then our reaction, our observation then changes the sort of multiverses of possibility. And the whole thing just happens at every moment simultaneously in this infinite progress or regress or however you want to say it. And there's just infinite zero points over and over and over. Do you see human beings as having a, I hate to use a word like this, but a special place in this whole order? Mm. You know, I think part of the hangover from Darwinism and neo-Darwinism is the belief that human beings are the pinnacle, the culmination of life. And I don't believe that. I think we're the newest and youngest members of the family of life. 
but I, I feel that human beings play a central role as stewards, as a companion species. Yet, we somehow think we've evolved outside of the Argaian mother. You know, we think that evolution for human beings is taking on some other trajectory, some other spin that is outside of life. And I think that's the most insane. I think that's actually a driver of a lot of our psychosis. And, you know, we were saying that when human beings went to the moon for the first time, Gaia saw herself differently than she ever could have because we are Gaia and we were reflecting back this vision from the moon. And human beings are going to play a central role somehow in bringing Gaian life outside of, of the solar system. You know, our sun has a 10 billion year half-life. We're, she's not going to be here forever. And the human beings that exist a billion years from now are going to be as different to us as we are from single-cell amoebas. We have no idea what they're going to be because whatever life exists at the, you know, whatever we want to call the end of days or the eschaton or that moment 10 billion years from now, we are going to be its progeny and vice versa. And I do believe in some kind of teleological directionality. And, you know, McKenna used to talk about this increase in complexity. And this is what complexity theory was about. Novelty is increasing, and it's increasing at an infinite rate. Even the speed of light is changing. Mm -hmm. You know, the boiling point of elements are changing. And so, of course, there's a trajectory. And he used to say, we're in parking orbit of the eschaton, (laughs) you know, or one of those great mechanisms. And the eschaton being the Christian study of the end of times, eschatology. And we do feel that we're in parking orbit of some eschaton, of some major transcendental moment. It's, it's around us and humans are playing a role. And I really believe we've reincarnated here on Gaia in 3D for a reason. I don't pretend to know that reason. And, and I think, you know, the mystery of life is not a problem to be solved. It's a mystery to surrender to. And that's the role the plants play. And that's the role meditation plays. And that's the role any transcendental experience plays for me. It's funny that the theme I've been working on lately, maybe close with this, is uh, human beings are not the problem, you know, we're at least part of the solution. You know, and I feel Definitely. like the world that we're in, when you listen to the philosophies of Google or Wall Street mm. or Washington, mm. it's as if humans are the thing that has to be fixed. Right. You know, and that's a transposition of figure and ground of, right. of, of sub- it's the, it's the ground that has to be fixed right. it's the the system that we're living in that right. has to be fixed right. not you know enough with the totally the, the pills so, and the social control and the, the mind shifting and the but, but, but this is the thing they don't understand right or they don't want to understand which is human beings are highly contextual beings we're neither good nor bad. We're highly contextual. And for 99% of our history, we were hunter-gatherers that lived in small egalitarian tribes with very little hierarchy. We had social sanctions to punish leaders that took advantage of their power. And we roughly had the same calories. You know, we were working 10 hours a week. You know, this is all the Marshall Salins original affluent society understanding and the whole understanding of cultural anthropology, of evolutionary psychology, of behavioral economics is that we are actually altruistic, cooperative, egalitarian. And what's happened is that the dominant neoliberal capitalist Western rationalist discourse is about human beings who fell from grace, who made the mistakes of eating the apple that we, of course, blame on on the female character in the story, that essentially 
are, are greedy, short-term is selfish, you know, the Hobbesian worldview, the Darwinian worldview. And as a result, we have to fix ourselves. And it, it's the, 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 the sort of like great uh, Judeo-Christian Islamic remorse, you know, that's then institutionalized in universities where, uh, look who's running Google and who's running the State Department. They all went to the same schools, the same Ivy League schools. They're largely white. They're educated in the same way. They aspire to the same leather chairs. You know, what they think is beautiful, their aesthetic milieu is the same. And those are the people we're allowing to lead artificial intelligence and our relationship with technology, lead the nation states, lead the corporations. And they inherently believe that human beings are flawed and greedy and evil. And so, of course, the world is going to reflect what they believe because that intentionality is quantum. It is embedded in every atom. And, and they're the, the power brokers who are in control of the material world. And now we're telling a better story. We're telling new stories. We understand that we're hardwired for empathy, that we have mirror neurons, that we're highly cooperative, we're highly altruistic. And we're going to create new experiments that reflect those new values. And when we do, we're going to make their system obsolete. And we're also having a better time in that process. And they're going to look at us and say, well, they're having a way better time. They're happier doing that because even the one percenters aren't happy. Their right. kids are on Ritalin. They're on ADD. They're totally disconnected. You know, they're, they're, they're not happy. Like no one could tell me Donald Trump is a happy man. And I think that is the hope for the revolution, that they themselves know it. Thanks. Thanks, Al Nurlata, for... Uh incarnating in the same general time and space as me. So uh-huh. we get to do this again. I'm sure we've done it before, but uh, I don't remember. We were probably killed for it. Yeah. <laughs> the memory has been removed from our right. DNA. Or maybe we did it in the future. You know, that's the way I roll. So thanks so much. Money means security. No money means terror. Oh, oh. This is Angel. This is Angel. We are the Android Sisters. Today's topic is money. Money is important. Everyone needs money. Have you been deprived of money? Do you suffer from money withdrawal? Do you need a money fix? Is your money fix not big enough? What if you lost your job? The job you can't stand. The job a machine could do. Then do it better. What if you lost that? Then what? Uh-oh. No money means terror. Oh. Oh. Are you happy? Do you wonder why you are not happy? Do you live in a constant state of fear? Have they made you into a money junkie? Do you have a job to hate? Are you looking for a job? Are you looking for a job you will hate? A job that could be done by robots? Is this not a stupid way to live your life? But you need money. Money means security. No money means terror. Oh, oh. Are you happy? Do you wonder why you're not happy? Do you live in a constant state of fear? You know how easy it is to control someone in that state of mind. Do you know how many hours in a day you think about money? Do you ever think about how much you think about money? Aren't you sick of thinking about money? Money. 
I don't know the future. I didn't come here to tell you how this is going to end. I came here to tell you how it's going to begin. I'm going to show you a world without rules and controls, without borders or boundaries. A world where anything is possible. And that's it for this Magical Mystery Tour. But don't panic. We'll be back next week. And until then, take good care of yourselves and each other.